This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Eric Goldman, and my guest today is Michael Safai. Michael is the managing partner at Dexterity Capital, a high-frequency trading firm that trades billions in crypto every day. We discuss market-neutral trading strategies, the challenges of high-frequency trading in crypto compared to TradeFi, and the pros and cons of trading on DEXs for centralized exchanges. Please enjoy this conversation with Michael Safai. Today, I'm excited to have Michael Safai with us, managing partner of Dexterity Capital. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks. Great to talk to you, Eric. So I thought a fun place to start would be your founding story with Abraham, how you two kind of found each other, where this idea came from, how you navigated your way from probably a lot of different opportunities into the crypto space. Abraham and I actually didn't come from traditional finance. I had been a lawyer a long time ago. And then, you know, I was a lawyer in San Francisco and then kind of pivoted towards startup law and then further pivoted away from law and just worked at startups and did stuff. So usually kind of BD roles or whatever. Abraham, who's a few years my junior, he had kind of come out of school and did some consulting work, but was very technical. And we both were together at this company called LiveRamp, which was a big data marketing technology company. I was trying to do the international rollout of the company there. And that's kind of the worst thing to do at a startup because you don't get any support. They're like, who's that guy over there across the ocean? We're not going to build anything for him. No engineering resources. But Abe happened to be visiting London when I was there. And I'm like, hey, man, I got this problem. No one can solve it for me. Can you solve it? And everyone told me it was a massive problem to solve. He did it in about an hour and a half and made it work. And he got yelled at for doing it. But that's when I knew he was a special guy who was always going to like solve problems no matter what. So that's how we got to know each other. The company did well. It's a public company now. I left about a year afterwards. He left. And we were kicking around ideas of what to do next. And this was 2017. So the ICO boom was on. So I said, pitch me on five ideas that you think might be successful. And the nuttiest one was in crypto, of course. I'm like, that's good. That has an asymmetric outcome, right? That can be either just absolutely nothing or a massive success. So the first thing we try to do is an ICO around kind of, there were lots of DEXs back then, believe it or not. Actually, DEXs were the primary way of trading in many ways. So we're thinking, oh, we need like a ratings agency, like an S&P and Moody's for all these different ICOs on DEXs. And we started to build that. And then we looked at some of the data we were collecting. And we're like, huh. These markets are broken. There's weird things happening where someone is bidding more than the best ask and the trade isn't being completed because that's not how DEXs worked back then. And I could take both trades and make money with zero risk right away. And so we said, let's do that instead. And so we started building that. And that worked really well throughout the ICO boom. And we built up a good little pool of capital. But 2018 came, markets cooled, ICOs were no longer the hottest thing. And we thought, well, what should we do now? There's less activity there. Well, Let's see what the guys who are like, you know, Jump used to do or Tower and see if we can build a high frequency trading system for crypto. And the rest is kind of history. We built from there. 
to the point where, you know, we traded over a trillion dollars in 2021 and we do billions every day still. So I think for a lot of people in the crypto space, they might not have known Dexterity, which I think is pretty wild. I appreciate you coming on the show. I know that you don't do many of these interviews, but maybe give people a thumbnail sketch of what is Dexterity? What does a prop capital firm mean? Why has the retail crypto trader not heard of you, but how you're such a powerful trading force in the market? Let's start with what a proprietary trading firm is. A prop trading firm is kind of like a hedge fund. We do a bunch of trades and we try to make money. But the key difference here is we don't use other people's money. We trade exclusively on our own account and we don't solicit any money from investors. So that's really all the different distinction between prop and hedge funds are. So we're like a hedge fund, no external money. Specifically, Dexterity focuses on high frequency, low latency trading. We run exclusively market neutral strategies. And we just do a lot of turnover and thrive off of volume and volatility. So as I said, you know, we'll trade a few billion a day. We'll do maybe one to 200,000 trades in a given 24-hour period. And that's really our bread and butter is fast, high-volume trading. And how big is the team? Today, we're about 17, eight people. 17 people trading a billion to $2 billion a day is pretty impressive numbers for crypto. It's an amazing team of people who are way, way smarter than I am. I'm the dumbest guy at the company. I'm very proud of that. I mean, somehow I got people who are way smarter than me to get together and build something awesome. So I'm excited to dive into the mechanics of some of these strategies, how they work, because I think to a lot of people, they're mysterious. But before we get there, I think it'd be interesting to get your take on the juxtaposition between TradeFi and DeFi. In the TradeFi world where I come from, high-frequency trading is a small group of extremely well-capitalized firms with hiring Stanford grads when they're freshmen and knowing they're going to get their PhD and work at this firm someday. And the idea of spinning up a high-frequency trading firm, it's just not possible in TradeFi. So give us a little bit of a take of the two worlds and how you're able to do this in the crypto space. TradeFi has been along for a long time. That's why it's traditional, I suppose. Um, But especially kind of HFT has been around for decades. It's a known quantity. People have spent decades studying exactly how to be faster. How do we get an extra micro or nanosecond on our competitors? How do we get our orders submitted to an exchange faster than anybody else? And they'll do nutty things. They'll go and build. You know, it's not just about cables. Yes, they'll try to get as close as they can to the co-location facility where the exchange is. But they'll build microwave towers. They'll cut down trees and bore holes through mountains so they can have a direct line of sight to the server and get their data there a microsecond faster and hopefully win because of it. So TradFi is really hard to break into HFT because it's a known beast, it's a known quantity, and it's a massive market that's kind of overfished to a certain degree. And the guys who are big are going to stay big probably, and little guys coming in really hard. Crypto, however, is new, and it was a very small market for a long time. So a lot of the big boys weren't interested because it just wasn't worth their time to spend $10 million in infrastructure or what they thought they needed to spend. They didn't need to really to build all that. So guys like us who are outsiders, we're not finance people, but we are technologists and we love hard problems. And we thought this is something we could tackle. And some of the key differences here, there's the hardware problem, which is very different because as I said, if you're traditional, you want to get as close as you can to some co-location facility. Most crypto exchanges are on AWS or Google Cloud or Alibaba. There is no hardware. And AWS is a heck of a lot slower than any of these co-location facilities like LD4 or Equinix. There's this like speed bump that levels the playing field that anyone who's smart can get in there and doesn't need to spend $10 million on hardware and bore holes in mountains. So for us, that was attractive. And there's also this thing about it being new and rapidly changing. It's not a known quantity. Part of our secret sauce is we've been doing this for five years. 
We understand the nuances of how each of these exchanges work. They're all different. They are not standardized, unlike in TradFi, where you can build one thing and it works in five different places. If I want to plug into Binance, that's a very different proposition than plugging into Coinbase, for example. And they're poorly documented and they're changing every day because they are effectively startups. They're moving at breakneck speed, building faster than they can document. Now, we figured out how these things work really well. So our latency gains come not from cables and microwave towers. It comes from understanding if I use this method instead of that method to submit an order, it's going to be five microseconds faster. It's an interesting point that the standardization is what large traditional oligopolies trend towards. So like we all can agree on this you know, common standard. What's an example of how that non-standardization is a competitive advantage versus a huge pain in the ass? I always like to talk to people who have a lot of scar tissue from trying things that would have seemed obvious, but then they're like, you have no idea how hard this is to just send one piece of information this way. The hard parts really come from not knowing what's available to you. And a simple example is an exchange has an API endpoint, let's call it API 4 or something like that. And at some point they spun up API 5, but didn't tell anybody and the documentation isn't there, or you just missed that telegram message in the ocean of telegram messages you get from exchanges. And you're like, God, I'm slower than everybody. Why is this happening? And it's just because you're using the wrong bloody thing. It's often a thing of just being really diligent, harassing our poor exchange reps who work really hard for us every day and saying, has this changed? Has that changed? Can I do this? Can I do that? Is something different today? That's the really hard part. And having seen, while I say all exchanges are different, some of the nuances overlap. Something, one post method here, for example, might be applied someplace else and not documented. And so you just try things and see what's faster. You do a lot of A-B testing to see what works and what doesn't. And that's really what it comes down to when you're talking about integrations. Looking back on the past five years of dexterity, if I gave someone, I think this is an interesting test for if there's actual competitive advantage. If someone had a hundred, if Citadel or someone had a hundred million dollars and tried to do this, is it not just a capital thing, but it's the experience, the connectives, the, that, the telegram messages to even understand the archaic nature of all of this? I think that's exactly right. And I compare it to being like a doctor. You have a junior doctor operating on you and taking out your appendix. They haven't done a thousand of these. Maybe they've done 10. I'm much more comfortable if someone's done a thousand, not because the human anatomy is really that different, but because they have experience. And trading is like that, especially in crypto where everything is nuanced. You have more experience. You can't buy that. I can't pay $10 million to know how this weird integration evolved over five years. I just have to suffer through it and figure it out. I'm curious to take a step back when we were talking about proprietary capital. Dan at CMS had talked a lot about this, of never wanting to take outside capital. As the firm was growing, was that ever part of your strategic roadmap of opening it up and you see these hedge funds in crypto with outstanding numbers, at least for 21, we'll see the 22 numbers. But did you ever think about managing money for outside capital or were these strategies very akin to this had to be proprietary? You know, here's a tricky thing. And it's not just that we're trade because we like money. We actually like it, which is weird, I know. But we like the problems we're dealing with. And the really hard problems are the problems that require low latency and lots of turnover. So when we trade, you know, if I say we trade a billion dollars in a day, we might only be using $50 million and we might just trade it 20 times. So if I'm a hedge fund and I want to make money at a two and 20 model where I'm taking that 20% performance fee, I need to deploy like at least a billion dollars to really be happy or else why am I doing this? So while we certainly looked at external capital, we just don't need that much. And the only reason we would is if we change away from what we really love, which is doing high turnover, high frequency strategies. And at that point, yeah, there's lots of cool strategies out there. They tend to be riskier. They tend to have more highs and more lows. We're market neutral. We kind of do well no matter how bad or good the market is. 
we don't, you know, during a bull run, we do great, but it's not like we just went levered long on Bitcoin and saw it go from 20 to 60. So we miss those opportunities. But whether it's raining or sunny, we're doing good. I think that when people think of the ones that even know about these firms, they seem like they're shrouded in mystery. And I know that you can't tell us, Dorn, do I want to ask about your secret sauce, but help us understand the type of strategies or a high-level introduction of what it means for a market-neutral trading firm, the crypto space. So market-neutral simply means that whether the price of an asset goes up or down when we're trading it, we still make money. That's not really what we thrive on. It's direction of the price, it's volume, and volatility. That's what we care about. To give you some examples, I think a good example is like a statistical arbitrage strategy, or stat arb, we call it. And a very trivial example of this is, you know, let's say uh, you got Pepsi and Coca-Cola. They're both selling sugar water. It's the same stuff, more or less, just a different audience. And you have a bunch of Pepsi stock, and you don't know why, but it goes up 10% on Monday, and Coke doesn't. Well, you have a pretty good reason to think whatever's good for Pepsi is good for Coke, because it's kind of the same thing. So you sell all your Pepsi, and you buy some Coke, and the Coke then goes up 10% on Tuesday. So you've made an arbitrage in a sense. You've made what we call statistical arbitrage of belief this other asset's going to go up because you've seen a correlated but not fungible asset also go up, Coke to Pepsi. You can do a lot of stat art in crypto. And it's actually unique because you've got assets like Bitcoin that you can trade with USD, with USDT, with USDC. You can trade it with Ethereum. You can trade it with a whole different host of things as the underlying currency. And because everything's a little different, you end up with slightly different numbers and it's really, really small. And that's why you have to trade a lot to make it work. But you find tiny little margins of kind of pricing discrepancies when you compare BTC and Ether versus BTC and USDT versus BTC and USDC. In cases like that, for the average retail trader, what would they need to execute something like that? It's hard without technology. I think there are special cases you'll see, especially in some of the kind of long tail altcoins where you'll find clear price discrepancies. It's evaporated mostly now, but you could also see things like what was called the kimchi premium, where in Korea, the price of Bitcoin, when you marked it to dollars, was slightly higher, maybe even 10 or 20% higher than it was in the West. And this was just because of currency controls. So if you were clever and you could figure out how to get Korean won and buy your Bitcoin in the US, send it over to Korea, sell it there, get your Korean won, and then pipe that back to dollars, you made a really good premium. I and mean, people were doing that a lot in 2017. And doing some things like flying bags of cash from Korea to get it sorted, which was a bit dodgy. And we never did that for the record, and we never would. <laughs> but it's certainly something that happened because there are these asymmetries in prices across this global market. I know that you trade volatility, and I think it's an interesting topic because when outsiders, institutions, high net worth ask me about it, that's why the topic of du jour is, it's an interesting asset class, but the volatility is just too much for me. And so there's strategies that people try to deploy that kind of reduces volatility. What are some of the strategies in that space? In terms of reducing volatility, I think it's, it's all about zipping up the markets in a sense, because they're all kind of diverging a little bit. A startup strategy, like I mentioned, just trading BTC and USDT against BTC and USDC, when things are super moving a lot, prices will be off by tiny, tiny bits on the timescale of, let's call it milliseconds. So the retail investor won't see this, but people like us are out there zipping up these prices, bringing them back together and making them converge. And this ultimately reduces volatility at that kind of microstructure level. At a macrostructure, it's hard to rein in volatility. If you're talking about like long tail altcoins, it's a function of depth. If you have a good market maker, for example, which there are a lot of different firms that do this, they can really help you with that because they can create depth in your coin on an exchange where they, you otherwise wouldn't organically have it. And when 
out of the blue, someone just decides to drop $1 million of coin XYZ on that exchange, the market maker is there to pick it up and make sure the price doesn't nosedive. I'm curious, in your trading, how much are these large trading firms trading directly against each other in like a bilateral trade versus going through an exchange? Can you give us color on kind of how the market structure works amongst these bigger firms? And I don't have an exact number, but the lion's share of trading is happening in venues you can see because they have the technology, because guys like us can go trade the same amount of currency 20 to 100 times a day. If you trade crypto regularly, you've almost certainly traded with dexterity at some point. You just don't know it because counterparties are anonymous. And there's definitely a lot of action happening offline on OTC desks and dark pools or what have you. But because they're not fully automated, you just can't do the same amount of volume. And from the exchanges, I've always found it interesting kind of how they're structured as their exchanges, but they're brokerage firms. So retail is kind of seeing everything in a way that they wouldn't in traditional finance. One thing that comes to mind is this idea of perpetual swaps, this creation that seems crypto basic. Can you give me an understanding of what are perpetuals? Are they important to large firms like you? How do you trade with a security like that? Perpetuals are really interesting because they look pretty much like a future, but futures have a settlement date in the 30 days or quarterly. Perpetual swaps don't really settle. They never actually settle. Instead, at some regular cadence, typically every eight hours, people are charged a fee or paid a fee for holding a position. This is called the funding rate. And that rate is determined on where that perpetual swaps price is with respect to the spot price of the same asset. If you're on the wrong side of it, you're going to get charged. And if you're on the right side of it, you'll get paid. Now, the great thing about perpetual swaps is, well, number one, you can get a lot of leverage. And in the earlier days, you know, BitMEX was out there doing 100x, no problem. Nowadays, you see more like 20x on Binance or something like that. So a lot of people with small pools who just want to use a lot of money, they can do that there. A lot of risk of liquidation. I don't recommend it. Don't go 20x. (laughs) Um, We never do. But it's something you can do. The other thing that's interesting about it is modeling that funding rate is non-trivial. It's a very difficult problem to figure out exactly how much you're going to get charged at the end of that eight hours and to predict it and make the right bet. It's not the Black-Scholes kind of level of Nobel winning problem, but it's a very difficult problem that's very hard to solve. And guys like us have spent a lot of time tackling that problem, and I'm sure others too. And we've all probably arrived at slightly different answers that we use to try to win. That number, I feel like there's some places that try to give you not the dexterity version, but a basic assumption. I think one thing that's interesting is yesterday, going into the merge, the Ethereum funding rate was like negative 300%, which seemed unusual for what funding rates would be to go short Ethereum. For the average or you know the more advanced trader, but not the high-frequency firm, looking at funding rates, how would you interpret going into the merge and seeing Ethereum at such a negative funding rate? The merge was a very, very weird time, (laughs) I'll tell you that. And it was kind of a nothing burger in the end. We didn't see much action, honestly. There was a lot of hype around it. The media did a great job of selling the story. But in the end, there just wasn't too much activity. So when you see a negative 300% funding rate, it's surprising. It tells you there's some people doing some funny things around this merge, but it just didn't materialize. And we're still digesting it. Yeah, I think that that was my takeaway is usually on more illiquid coins, seeing the funding rates get wacky makes sense because there's low liquidity. And if someone really wants to take a big position, it's going to cause that funding rate is the only solution if there's the long and short term imbalance. But to see it on Ethereum was surprising. So then I was kind of of the mindset, I think many were of like, okay, well, I don't know what's going to happen, but something big is going to happen. And obviously it's dropping now. But going into it, I think there was a lot more anticipation. So I was as surprised as you of like, how can it get like this and then not really have a big after effect? Yeah, and I think it's a very good indicator of kind of sentiment or perception of what's going to happen. And 
none of us knew. I certainly didn't know. And then I didn't know it was going to be just like a thud. Any kind of event where you're going to expect something to happen, but have uncertainty around it, you're going to see those funding rates act up. Going back to kind of your space in general, are you seeing more adoption of those traditional players now wanting to get into the space? I know it kind of ebbs and flows based on the price, but are you seeing competition from the traditional HFT firms trying to get into crypto or is that slowed down? Crypto eclipsed that trillion dollar asset class a while back. And when that happened, everyone took notice and the guys at Citadel started building and I'm sure the guys at Jump and Tower, everybody's been focusing more and more on it. We've definitely seen it. You know, guys that are kind of more focused like us, like an HRT or a Radix, they're also very interested in the space now. Um, so they started building when it was a very valuable, kind of we were in that bull market last year. When things popped in May, I wondered if they would keep coming. So we've been watching over the summer, and I think the short answer is yes, they're here. We're seeing a lot of activity that resembles people like us. We've seen retail outflow, like there's just a lot more institutional play than retail play. And I think the most telling thing was August. I've been in a bunch of Augusts that were bull and bear, and they were always still busy for us. This was the quietest August we've ever had. And then mid-September, things start to come back. And that's exactly what played out for the first time. I'm pretty sure they represent a much bigger share of what's happening now. Retail is kind of shaken out anyways for the moment. That's so funny you say that, because I think it was two years ago, it was busy August. And then I had made a comment, I think on Twitter about this, of like, the thing about crypto that's amazing is people are still trading, talking. There's a lot more information. Like they don't go away in August. And I agree. This is the first August where it felt just like the old days. We're like, okay, no one's going to be back on their desk until September. Pretty much. I should have taken more time off. <laughs> I guess it's a great indicator. When you think about analyzing data or flows, what is for people that are curious to follow the markets or get more involved in it, what are some of the kind of the top areas of data or indicators that someone can look at to kind of get a sense of, because I feel like from your seat, you get a ton of information, both the data feeds, all your connective, all your technology, plus you're talking to lots of people, I'd assume. But for someone who's not running a trading desk, what are the things that they can look at to see the healthiness of a market leverage sentiment? Yeah, I think there's a few key indicators that are pretty easy to get access to. And one we've talked about is the funding rate. That can be really indicative where people think are going. You've also got the basis. And it's really weird because you don't really have delivery in terms of Bitcoin or Ethereum. It's not like someone's housing a bunch of barrels of oil for you. When you see that basis curve and when you see things go contango, that's kind of interesting. So that's something to look at as well. But I think a big thing is open interest. That really tells you where people are betting big. And I think a good example of that over the past, gosh, was it one month? Is it about five months? Has been Tether. So if you look at FTX, they've got a USDT perpetual. Traditionally, over the past few years, open interest hovered around $100 million. But when the Terra thing popped and people were nervous about stable coins, you saw that OI number rocket to like $500 million or something like that. And at the same time, we're hearing from every OTC desk, oh, everyone's shorting Tether right now. And then kind of nothing happened. And we've seen that they've even come out and had uh, the BDO do their audit, which is very trustworthy, kind of top five accounting firm. And now that open interest number is down to about $220 million today. Can you go back to that example? That's a great one. But I like the example of walking through the contango and why that would happen in cryptocurrencies. Well, the barrel of oil, you expect there to be some carrying cost, for example. You'll pay more to get it later because you're not paying to have to store it in your warehouse. With Bitcoin and Ethereum, that really shouldn't happen. You know, you're not storing it. It doesn't cost you to carry anything. But some people think, you know, I really expect BTC to blossom in May. It happens every May, or these stories you always here on Twitter or whatever. So you'll see that futures curve kind of go up and you'll see it be well above what it is right now. And this was very much happening in the beginning. I think it was 2020. I might have the year wrong. It's all fuzzy now. But there was just 
lots of free money in the basis trade. You just waited for a month to pass and the price would have to converge and you were in great shape. So you can't get into weird situations where the futures curve is actually below the spot price today. And that's really strange because again, you can just buy it and hold it. You don't need someone to carry it for you. So those kinds of things are interesting and they kind of tell you something's up and there's a lot of pessimism about the future, but not enough to sell today, which is weird. When you think about broadly crypto, I'm curious just to get your kind of higher level thoughts on Web3, NFTs, kind of other assets that we've seen introduced that have kind of gained more in mainstream popularity. I feel like when you started in the ICO boom and then DEXs, it was still token, speculation, liquid. But it felt like with this NFT boom more recently, it kind of introduced a different audience, still speculation and wild guessing on prices, but a different way than setting up code and trying to like trade faster than somebody else. The NFT situation is really interesting because I think like much of crypto, there are these grand aspirations for what they can be, but no one's really figuring out product itself. It's still frustrating to me because we started indexes and decentralized finance, you know, five years ago, and it's much bigger than it ever was. But we're still using the same tools. We're still using MetaMask. It's still really hard for people who are kind of everyday people to get involved with it because it's just such a pain to use. And it's still like a small group of nerds doing nerdy stuff. And I'm happy to be in that group of nerds. There's nothing wrong with them. I wish there was larger retail adoption. So NFTs, people are trying to figure out what do I do with these things to make them really exciting. And, you know, the best story I've heard around is probably access giving you kind of a connection to a thing in the real world, admission to a club, admission to an event, something that you get for it that you can appreciate that isn't necessarily an asset. And then you can freely trade this. If there was ever a way to make like the Soho house, just use NFTs instead of membership cards, that might be cool. But then of course that undercuts their whole model of curating who's there. On your point of the, when you were looking at DEXs and MetaMask are all the same things, how do you compare the notion of DEXs as an actual trading platform you see in the future versus centralized exchanges? I think that there's clearly some regulatory overhang, which I'd love to get your thoughts on. But when you just think of a centralized exchange versus a DEX, pros and cons for you as dexterity, as well as for you know mainstream adoption and the market trading on either of those? This kind of what's happening now, what's happening in the future. So centralized exchanges are great because it feels familiar. We don't think about it, but when you park your money on E-Trade or Robinhood, there is counterparty risk. Yes, you've got some governmental insurance and regulation and far more oversight, but you know, if you really look at it, there is counterparty risk. Probably not a risk you'll ever have to face, but it exists. So with centralized exchanges, if you go someplace reliable, you're probably pretty good. And if you go to the long-tail exchanges, anything can happen. We all remember Quadriga. There is some security there, and there's kind of easy UI. You know how to use it. You click a button. It works. Just don't forget your login or 2FA. DEXs, it's interesting because you will, in a sense, eliminate counterparty risk because you are the one holding the assets on a true DEX. And even if a DEX goes down, if it's structured correctly, your asset should revert to your wallet anyways. So you're good there. There have been some hacks that definitely is going to keep happening because it's really hard to use code as law without any safeguards. As we talked about earlier, just the UI problem is tough. It's very hard for mass adoption to kind of get into it because just... You click on MetaMask and you sign a transaction. You don't know what signing a transaction means and you don't know what you actually sign, but let's get this over with. Oh, I didn't pay enough gas. Let's try that again. So that's really the, the big differences. For us, we go where the volume is. Volume still remains in centralized exchanges. That's where we can do the most. I'm kind of indifferent. Um, there are different problems, but if a DEX were to come up and have far more volume than Binance, that's exactly where we'd be. Forward-looking, I think DEXs are going to become more important. What we're seeing with centralized exchanges and kind of crypto generally, as TradFi comes in, is convergence. We're going to get to a place where 
what's happening on centralized exchanges looks almost the same as in TradFi. And you're going to have to pay for co-location and you're going to have to pay $100,000 a month just to get data. And I think that's where centralized exchanges are headed and towards that most heavy-handed regulation you can get to the point of maybe being a national securities exchange. DEXs are probably going to have to fill that void because they can exist in a way that is difficult to kind of pigeonhole into existing regulation and even forthcoming regulation. I don't know how to do it. It's really hard in a true DEX situation where there is no centralized management. I do think DEXs are going to be much more important in the future. And, you know, Dexterity, while we don't trade much on them right now, we invest in them. And we're backing a few exchanges that we think will be really successful. What is your take on that notion of like code is law versus trading? I think it's interesting that at least on the institutional trading side, as much as everyone says, you know, trade's a trade, there always seems to be recourse where whether it's a fat finger or someone did the wrong thing. If people knew how many trades were unwound every day on Wall Street, I think their mind would be blown of the back office just nightmare of just things not tying and taking out. I think it's the beauty actually of DEXs and trading on chain is like, it is, it's, it's right there. Everyone knows what happened. You could make a mistake, but there's no like, I meant to do this spread or I didn't you know tie this up a different way. Do you see TradeFi actually moving to crypto rails where there is actually a sizable on-chain trading of traditional securities? Or do you think we're just too far away from something like that? We all love technology. We're all these technologists here. But human judgment is still really important in where we are in the evolution of technology. And that's why you have these safeguards of people getting involved and checking ACH transfers and all this other stuff. Because you know something can happen now and again, whether it's human error or some kind of bug that needs to be remedied. And DEXs really don't allow for that. And maybe the fact is we need to get to a point where technology has judgment that mirrors human judgment before we can totally eliminate that human element. I think that's how what retail would want. So they feel safe engaging. As a trader, I'm okay with DEXs being what they are because I understand there are specific rules to the game. They are transparent. They are open. I can see everything that's happening. And it ultimately is my fault if I screw it up. Apps in a hack which again, we need to solve that as well, don't we? But hacks happen to centralized exchanges too. Is it that they just make so much money that that's fine in the current state? Depending. As you said, there's lots of Wall Street trades that get unwound. There's lots of hacks at exchanges you know by name that are top 10 that get swept under the rug because they can make everyone whole because it's a great business model for right now where they can just generate so much on pure fees. Talking about DEXs and kind of the opportunity to invest in them or participate at a different level. They've obviously come a long way. I'm curious, what are some of kind of the craziest stories for the Wild West days when you guys were first starting and trading on DEXs? Yeah, I'm thinking back to maybe like 2017. And, you know, we're actually called Dexterity Capital because we were trading on DEXs so much. We thought it would be a good name. Stuck with it, even though we don't do much DEX work anymore. And back then, everyone was trying to figure out new ways to do things. One of the companies that was Bancor, which is still around, and they have this platform where if you want to trade some ETH for coin XYZ, you'd have to give them ETH, and then their contract would convert that to the Bancor token. Another contract would convert that to Bancor to XYZ. So it's a really technical way of doing it. They tried to make it just like everything in one. And one morning, I wake up and I look at our wallet. We were running a bunch of bots to kind of trade against Bancor. And I look at my wallet, and there's $300,000 of a coin I've never heard of in my wallet, and I have no idea why. And it didn't make any sense. It was not like consistent with our PL in those days. So I go to the Bancor website and it's down. And I'm like, oh God, what happened? Did we do something wrong? Like I called my lawyer, are we in trouble? And I told him exactly how we trade. He's like, no man, that's all fine. You're fine. I'm just, I'm sweating bullets. I'm like, should we send the money back? And then finally, a story comes out. They've been hacked for $25 million. 
and some nefarious actor had actually drained the Bancor from that middle contract that I described earlier, and that screwed up their algorithms. So our bots just bought all of this token I've never heard of because there was a rounding error in our system that was so small, it really never should have happened. But you know, back in those early days to wake up and find an extra 300 grand was pretty sweet. And that's just part of the growing pains of DEXs was like figuring out what are the edge cases, what can go wrong and what should you not do. And I think, uh, you know, Bancor learned the lesson and went on from there. I mean, I know there's always edge cases, but it feels like as easier opportunities start to go away where there's just mistakes and people talk about free money of you can trade in one exchange for $10 and then go sell it somewhere else for $15. How would you describe the level of difficulty to get alpha or edge out of the market today compared to back then? It's so hard now. I mean, back then it was, as I said, you could see a situation where just the bid was higher than the ask. So it was free money. I took both orders. And the way you do things on chain, if one of those orders were gone for some reason, by the time my order got mine, I could cancel the whole thing. And I never actually took either of the orders. So that was great. I would just pay for gas. Now, I mean, there are firms who just specialized in that. And we would have these gas wars with anonymous people on chain where we could see that, look, this opportunity is worth let's say one Ethereum. So I'm going to bid 0.8 Ethereum in gas at maximum, because that's the most I'm going to spend and get my 0.2 net. And somebody was fighting us so hard on the other side, they were betting 1.2 ETH on gas. And I thought, why are they losing money on this? And then we looked at their wallet and we looked at ours and their wallet had an order of magnitude with more funds in it. And their game was to take all our money in gas and then we're out of the market and they'll go back to making money the standard way. So that's how it was back then. Now it's, it's well overfished really hard. One thing on the DEX is when I think about TradeFi and just in general, there's kind of this push-pull between regulators' desire for transparency and institutional traders who have an edge of some sort of trying to delay it. So like in the bond market, for example, you're trying to delay as long as you have to tell the market what you just did. So nobody knows about it. So if you're doing a trade, you don't want anyone to know about it. That seems like an aligned incentives. With DEXs and information being on-chain and your kind of excitement about it, I'm curious about that push-pull between, yeah, this is really cool technology, and I love it personally. It seems like it levels the playing field, but I would assume that bigger players would be like, no, 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 I'd rather trade in a dark pool where nobody knows what I'm doing versus something like a DEX. Well, they're different games, I think. I think doing on centralized exchanges, nobody sees your cards. You put an order in, they don't know it was you, they don't know what your other orders were, all that. On DEXs, especially on something that's on the Ethereum chain and it's fully on chain, it's playing poker with everyone's cards face up. And somehow you have to gain an advantage. And that's a different problem to solve. And it's an exciting problem to solve. You have to do a lot of clever things. You have to optimize gas. You have to be smart about which methods you call in your contract to actually capture the alpha. So it's a really fun problem. I really enjoy it. It's just so different. It's not something a Citadel would come and do because it's just so well out of their wheelhouse, I think. But who knows with them? Can you give an example of how you find an edge when everyone's cards are face up? So as I mentioned earlier, when you're trying to get these ARBs, you know, they're worth X and you're willing to pay 80% of X in gas costs at maximum, for example, to capture them. Well, if you're really good at solidity coding, which is what Ethereum runs on, you can find ways to actually save gas, but execute the same thing. So my hope is my competitors using less efficient code to and paying 0.8x, but I can actually pay 0.75x and have the same number out there because I've got better code. So that's really what it comes down to is how do you efficiently navigate the solidity code to win? This is just a different version of speed. It's a different version of speed. Yeah, exactly right. Just switching gears a little bit, 
if you were going to analyze an investment firm and you were going to put money into them, how would you go through your kind of diligence process of these people are legit versus, you know, they've got great decks and great marketing and hype, but I don't think they actually have the talent to outperform the market. It's really hard is the short answer. I mean, you go through the audited financials, you can go through whatever the admin has produced, you can try to verify as much as you want. It's a little tricky, especially in crypto, where you don't have a single prime broker keeping track of records. You've got a bunch of different disparate sources, and it's very easy things to be obfuscated intentionally or not. So you do all you can on that diligence front. You are extremely skeptical. I've been in a few businesses in my life, and there's no, like, nowhere else are people as skeptical as in crypto. Like, our bullshit detectors are set to ultra maximum 24 seven. You know, you just don't believe anything. I think that you ultimately can do all your diligence, but you end up having to trust people. That's really what it comes down to. If you want to put your money somewhere, you have to say that these guys are good guys who I believe are going to do the right thing. And it's funny because in crypto, you've seen a lot of guys with bad track records who set up big shops and then something bad happens. And you're like, why didn't you know this? But that's greed for you, man. I think it would happen anywhere. I think it happens at a pace and scale not seen before, obviously because of lack of regulation. So maybe that's an interesting kind of segue into, I mean, you touched on a little bit of potentially centralized exchanges drifting towards having to be nationally registered. What do you think good regulation would look like in this space to get people less skeptical? I agree that crypto participants are some of the most skeptical, but the critics outside are highly skeptical that this makes sense or is safe for retail to play. Would good regulation start to look like or some of the early steps? You know, I think it ends up looking like convergence again. I think the exchanges, and they're preparing for this, need to go the way of being fully CFTC and SEC compliant as if they were an exchange doing securities. And we've seen that with Coinbase. They're having their own battles right now, but they acquired Ferex when they wanted to launch a futures product because they needed somebody who was regulated, so they didn't muck about, and they just went and got the license. There's a few reasons crypto hasn't been fully regulated. Number one, a lot of other priorities in the world right now. Number two, it's a big asset class, but it's a drop in the bucket compared to the larger financial system. I mean, the Dow got wiped, what, three or four X, the total market cap of crypto a few days ago. And the last thing, it's just a really hard problem. Um, and it's something you have to wrap your head around and spend a lot of time on. So we're getting to the point where it's too valuable. Too many people are getting into trouble. They've got to do something. And it doesn't necessarily make sense to create a whole new regulation just for crypto. They're probably going to create something that's analogous or identical to TradFi and just kind of pigeonhole it in. You know, I used to be a lawyer and that's kind of what you do. You try to find precedent and squeeze it right in there. Something we've talked about in the past that I've really enjoyed is starting a firm and thinking about hiring, recruiting talent. And I think something that's special about Dexterity is you're not all sitting in the same location. So tell me a little bit about how you look to recruit talent, the type of people you bring into Dexterity, and then maybe a follow-up. I'd love to hear about how you manage kind of a global workforce where I pictured when I remember going to Jane Street, it looks like a football field. Everyone's got their heads on. They're all close. But the notion that any of those computers could be anywhere else in the world just would never happen. At a high level, there's three major axes we hire for. It's, you know, smart, hardworking, and nice. And the first two, everyone's in for that. That's easy. Nice, not so much. Why do we hire for nice? Number one, we want to enjoy our jobs. We want to like, we don't work with brilliant jerks. And we just want to have like a nice time at work. Number two, because we are all over the globe, Nice people are much easier to deal with on a phone call or I am than somebody who's curt or not really properly socially adjusted. So that's why it's really important. And, you know, when we look to hire people, we put them through some rigorous testing. You will be coding. It's not going to be fun. It's going to be hard. You won't have all the answers. It's very hard to blow our interviewers away. 
at the same time, we're also going to check out to be like, is this person I want to sit down with for the next 40 hours of this week and be working in close confines with? And that's really important as well. So I think for us managing across the globe, it's tricky, but COVID kind of made it easier because it you've leveled the playing field to a certain degree. Everybody had to figure it out. And we've done pretty good with it. We do have kind of clusters of people sitting together. If there's five people in City X, we don't want them all sitting separately, right, in their homes. We prefer to get them a space and everyone can be together because there's obviously efficiency gains to be had there. But otherwise, it just comes down to good, constant, open communication, regular check-ins. It's expensive. It takes time. From that perspective, I mean, it's expensive. It's not really, it doesn't cost you more necessarily. How do you handle it as running the firm, staying in touch with all of these different pods of people? I can imagine the five people in City X are jamming away in front of a whiteboard and they have something, but you've got a lot of demands on your time. How do you stay on top of all the different teams of what's going on and how to prioritize what's going to happen next for Dexterity? It's a function of having people that you trust to have really good judgment. We do not micromanage at any level because this, again, just doesn't work, especially when you're distributed. For me personally, I've got daily check-ins with kind of key people who I know are in the right places and have a really strong grasp on exactly what's happening. And I always check in, how is person X doing? How's person Y doing? Are they happy that their girlfriend dumped them? Is something going wrong? And then you kind of do that. And then we, you know, once a quarter, we all try to get together in some city and all work in the same space and have a little party and kind of bond. Originally, we were going to talk about this a couple of months ago, and it was in the middle of the lunar crash. I'm curious, when you have something that seems highly automated, technical, running on code, how do you think about risk management and whether it's manual circuit breakers or what do you do when there's an event that clearly no model had kind of anticipated for? How do you handle that? Because I can imagine you're excited when volatility is happening. Trading's great. That seems where dexterity thrives. But what happens in something like that, like a true meltdown? Meltdowns are hard for a few reasons. Number one, yeah, the models might not predict it, but even harder than that, exchanges break, which we're not really used to in the traditional world. They break in different ways. Maybe they send you a message that's incorrect, or they tell you an order's been filled when it actually hasn't been filled, and you've gone and action that, or you can't withdraw, and suddenly it's a problem to balance. That's really where the headaches come in. And for us, it's all about lots and lots of redundancies. Lots of different ways to check the status of an balance and a system. A common example is for a given exchange, you might have a fixed connection, you might have a WebSocket, you might have an API. And we're polling all three all the time, even though we're only trading against one, to make sure that things are making sense. We might be polling the spot side of an exchange, even though we're not trading spot there, just to make sure those prices make sense. So you need to have a lot of redundancy built in. So when these chaotic things happen, and we've had a lot of trials by fire, you know what the edge cases are. So even the Terra Luna day, we knew what the edge cases were, and it worked really well. And I've got to say, exchanges have improved dramatically. If you asked me this question two years ago, I'd probably be sweating bullets right now because I just don't know what's going to happen. But the exchanges have expended a lot of time and money building up their infrastructure, being ready for big days, and having support teams that are available 24-7. So these days, I don't really have to worry too much about that. When you talked in the past, you mentioned to me like kind of this rebellious spirit of the industry and you know people trying to do great things, but eventually it being co-opted by powerful sources. With something like that, with that like lack of standardization, which we've talked about in, in your experience, exchanges are exponentially better than they were. Where are we in that cycle of, do you see them eventually leading towards a standardization process where all exchanges kind of have a single connection? And then what does that do for edge cases of where you can find return? I do expect it to happen at some point. It takes a while, though, I think. And, you know, I've been in startups for a while, and I've seen how long it takes from a startup to go from a very big, successful unicorn to a like an IBM. 
And it actually takes quite a long time. And that's what it'll take for these guys to standardize. Is they're, they're all fighting each other anyways. They're all trying to steal each other's customers. The last thing in our mind is, yeah, we should all adopt fix to make life easier. Right now, they're just trying to find whatever little alpha they can for their business in how they build. So logically, yes, we should get to standardized fixed connections just like in TradFi, but I think we're years away from that. I don't know if this is a positive or a negative. Is this like idea of like their regulatory jurisdictions that all of these things are located in different countries and different places? I'm curious, what does that mean for the industry? And what does that mean for you when you think about positioning? You have to be global just because we're dealing with all of these gray areas of who can trade where. I think the strategy right now for exchanges to find ways to be compliant everywhere they want to be compliant. And the good examples of this are Binance and FTX, right? Who set up their own, you know, FTX US. They only have US facing products. They're working to acquire licenses for the relevant things they need. It's interesting because you end up with siloed but correlated liquidity. So, you know, FTX prices and FTX US prices are not always one to one, but they're pretty close. It's kind of an interesting thing that you can have this disparity in the same organization. But I think right now everyone's running this game of um, the way it worked in the early days, right? You're like, I can make a ton of money making an exchange, screw the law. Right. And so they built these exchanges that were clearly breaching all kinds of laws and they were not careful, but they made so much money, they stayed ahead of any consequences or the consequences were like slaps on a wrist. So what they've done since then is they've got this big war chest of funds and they can spend all this money becoming compliant. And that's what's going to happen. I think, you know, if you're a new exchange, a new centralized exchange starting out right now, it's really hard because you're going to have to build a real war chest to get to that stage or you're just going to have to kind of stay rogue forever. One thing you just made me think of when you're talking about kind of the Binance and the changes and how they're so competitive with each other, it's kind of a, a weedy question, but I'm curious about, I think stable coins are one of the most interesting things. Maybe it's come Fidelity and money markets, but just like, it's a very interesting vehicle I could see being used that's maybe like underappreciated how powerful stable coins could be. I'm curious when people trade on exchanges and to your point, you know, you were giving those examples of ETH and USD or USDT, when Binance shifted to this one stablecoin idea. Is that better for liquidity for firms like you, or does that take away an advantage that you had? You know, to the extent you can fund it with whatever stablecoin you want, it's great. And there is a real schism in the world. In the East, they love Tether. They want everything to be margined in Tether. And in the West, they tend to veer towards USDC. So it's really kind of a fascinating schism. I don't know why it exists, but it does. And I think you're right. Stablecoins are super important. What I think is also interesting is for a long time, you had products margined in coin. So, you know, you could trade, you know, I don't know, what's a good example, uh, Cardano using BTC on the coin margin book on Binance, or you could do it with BUSD or USDC or T or whatever on the dollar margin book. And we've definitely seen movement away from coin towards the stable coin. People don't want to trade in or margin in a volatile asset if they don't have to. So we're seeing a lot of people move over to that stablecoin model. And then the next phase, which has already started, is unifying them, where it doesn't matter what asset you have in your account. You can use that to margin your position. So you call it portfolio margin. And you can use the same pot of money to fund your futures and your spot wallet and all kinds of different products. And you take a little haircut in terms of what your margin's worth based on what you're using. Dollars, gold standard, it's always going to be worth 100%. ETH, due to volatility, it might be 90%. And just on that last point there of getting leverage, how have you seen, I mean, you talked about what some of the Wild West days were with leverage. How do you think about leverage in the system even six months ago to today? And how do you stay on top of if leverage is building up in the system or if it's being destroyed? The biggest change in the past six months has been what happened with Celsius and the kind of 
3AC stuff and what the follow-on was for other lenders out there, like the BlockFi's and Genesis's of the world. During the bull market, everyone's pretty excited. Risk systems were not necessarily built properly or fully at these lenders because they were startups, because they were still building. And everyone was making so much money. It was kind of like, eh, give it a go. We'll see what happens. That has changed in light of what's happened. So there's been a real clampdown on lenders that are willing to give leverage to institutional traders. Diligence has gotten much more intense, and there's less money to go around right now, which has hurt volumes for sure. Ultimately, this is a good thing because you don't want this linchpin of the whole industry to collapse on you. It's really bad when this happens, as we've seen now, and we don't want it to happen again. We just spend more time on diligence right now with lenders. We spend more time talking to lenders. We spend more time making them comfortable that, yes, we are truly market neutral, you know, very high sharp. You're not going to find us with this massive drawdown tomorrow. That's interesting. And probably for the better, I agree. Michael, this has been a lot of fun. And we like ending these podcasts with the same question. What are you most excited to see built or invest in over the next six months and over the next six years? You know, as a trader, I care about exchanges and I care about finance tech. I think in the next six months, as I said earlier, DEXs are going to become more and more important, especially as centralized exchanges veer towards the traditional models. So I'm, you know, we've invested in DEXs. We're big fans of them. And we think they're just cool. Like the idea that you can do these things in a custody-free way and you can do it in a public way is absolutely like mind-boggling. So we love them for that reason. So I'm excited for that over the next six months. Over the next six years, what I really want, and I hope it's sooner than six years, is a crime that resembles TradFi primes because TradFi primes are great. You can back your positions in lots of different places. You have lots of services. You have lots of leverage. There's a few guys out there trying to do it. And there's some guys doing it right. And there's some guys who are struggling to figure out the way to do it. It would just be great to have kind of that counterparty risk problem go away to a certain extent and just trust the prime with it and have that centralized access to everything you need for every venue you're trading in. Yeah, it comes down to at the end of the day with trading, there's a lot of trust between counterparties and anything you can do to kind of build up that institutional level trust is going to be good for everyone involved. Yep. Well, Michael, thank you for joining me today. This has been awesome. Thank you so much. Really enjoyed it. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 